I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Welcome to the Sunday Magazine podcast featuring the stories we first brought you Sunday, January the 7th on CBC Radio. The new year kicked off with growing tensions in the Middle East. First up today, The Economist Middle East correspondent Greg Karlstrom will share his analysis on the latest and what it may signal for a potential broader conflict. After that, if you're still feeling a bit foggy after the holiday break, well, we'll clear those cobwebs when we play the latest round of our monthly brain game. That's puzzling. Also today, inflation and interest rate hikes hit Canadians hard last year, but economist Jim Stanford thinks there's reason for some cautious optimism. And later on, after an injury ended her violin career, Maya Shankar reinvented herself as a cognitive scientist. She'll share her story and what she's learned about how we can all navigate life changes better. It all starts right now on The Sunday Magazine. Today marks three months since the start of the war between Israel and Hamas. And as the number of people killed and the humanitarian crisis inside Gaza continues to grow, so too are fears the conflict is poised to spread into a larger regional conflagration. New worry of a wider war was sparked after the killing of a top Hamas leader in Lebanon. Also putting the area on edge were several other volatile incidents this past week. Two deadly explosions in Iran, claimed by ISIS. Yemen's Houthi rebels launching attacks on shipping in the Red Sea. A U.S. strike taking out a militia leader in Iraq. And today, seven Palestinians as well as one Israeli officer were killed in the occupied West Bank following Israeli raids. Greg Karlstrom is a Middle East correspondent for The Economist. Greg, good morning. It's uh, really good to have you back with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me again. So I want to get a sense of the mood in the aftermath of that attack that I mentioned in the Lebanese capital, which happened this past Tuesday, killed several Hamas members, including notably its deputy leader, Saleh al-Aruri. How volatile do things feel now? They, they feel very volatile. I mean, the mood in the Lebanese capital right now is certainly one of fear. We've had almost three months of daily back and forth bombardment between the Israeli army on one side and Hezbollah and other groups in Lebanon uh, on the other side. But those strikes until now have all more or less followed certain rules of engagement. They've taken place relatively close to the border, uh, you know, in areas where where 
both sides sort of agreed they would confine the fighting. So to have an assassination now that takes place not on the border, but in the capital uh, is something that has really raised concerns about escalation. You have uh, within the leadership of Hezbollah and Hamas and, and other Iranian-backed groups, uh, there's a scramble going on right now to try and figure out who leaked information. Obviously, there seems to have been some penetration by Israeli intelligence that that gave them intelligence about where Aruri was. And then amongst the, the broader public in Lebanon, uh, a real concern that this might be another step towards an all-out war of the sort uh, that we saw in, in 2006. Okay, so Israel hasn't confirmed or denied responsibility for the death of Al-Aruri, though it's widely attributed um, that it did this. So if, as you say, this is a targeted killing, something different than we've seen in the past three months. What's your read on that part of this in terms of an Israeli strategy? I think Aruri is someone who, even before October 7th, but certainly after the massacre on October 7th, uh, someone that Israeli officials had on their hit list. I mean, everyone that I have spoken to in in the Israeli government, the Israeli army over the past few months uh, has said there is a list of Hamas leaders that they want to kill in the wake of October 7th. And Aruri's name always comes up on that list. So in one sense, it's not surprising that if they had intelligence about his his whereabouts, they assassinated him. On the other hand, I, I think it shows a much greater willingness to take the risk of escalation with Lebanon. The Israelis until now have signaled, as has Hezbollah in Lebanon, that they're not interested in this escalating into a wider war. They would like to avoid a wider war. And so I think to go so far as to strike in the heart of the Lebanese capital, uh, to assassinate someone, something that the leader of Hezbollah warned a few months ago would draw a harsh response from his group, uh, I think it shows an increased tolerance for escalation risk on the part of the Israelis. Hmm. And the fact that this happened in Beirut and not in southern Lebanon, which is Hezbollah's stronghold, does that location, is that significant? It is, because again, it, it goes outside of what has been accepted as the rules of engagement for the past few months. Just about every strike that uh, Israel has carried out, just about every strike that Hezbollah has carried out, they have been within a few kilometers of the border, uh, both sides, both northern Israel and southern Lebanon, have basically emptied out at this point. You've had hundreds of thousands of civilians who have been displaced because they've fled what has been a zone of active fighting. But uh, there has not been anything in the capital. This is the first time in, in many, many years that the Israelis have struck inside of Beirut. And again, going back to uh, what Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, said last summer, he was very explicit. He said, any assassination on anyone, be it Lebanese, Palestinian, or Iranian, he said, uh, would draw a, a serious reaction from Hezbollah. So both the location and the choice of target uh, almost daring Nasrallah to respond in, in some more significant way than he has over the past three months. Yeah, he held a news conference a, a couple of days ago and sort of reiterated the points that you just made there. But I'm wondering at this point, three months in, as you said, there have been, they're bigger than skirmishes, but cross-border things between Hezbollah and, and Israel. But at this point, Greg, what is the appetite on Hezbollah's part for a, a wider war? They still want to avoid one. I mean, I think if you listen to his public statements over the past few days in the wake of Aruri's assassination, uh, he's spoken twice. The first time, uh, he barely mentioned that it was a pre-planned speech to mark the uh, anniversary of Qasem Soleimani's assassination in 2020. 
The second speech, he talked a bit more about Aruri's assassination in Lebanon, but uh, he reiterated again that Hezbollah has sought to avoid an all-out war. And he made what I thought was a very interesting comment about uh, efforts, American-led efforts that are going on right now to try and negotiate, uh, a, a to demarcate the land border between Israel and Lebanon, something that, of course, has never happened because they are technically at war. Lebanon doesn't recognize the existence of Israel. And so they have these 13 disputed points along their land border. The Americans are trying to negotiate a resolution to those territorial disputes, uh, much like they demarcated the maritime border uh, two years ago between Israel and Lebanon. And uh, they were hoping that doing that might lower tensions between the two sides. Nasrallah, in his speech, signaled that he was open to those sorts of negotiations with the Israelis, but only after the war in Gaza ends. So his public messaging, I think, still somewhat de-escalatory. He's promised to respond uh, for the assassination. Hezbollah claimed responsibility for firing 62 uh, rockets at an Israeli army base yesterday and said that was part of its response. But uh, public messaging has been very focused uh, still on on trying to avoid a wider war. The other thing I've been thinking about these past few days is 2006, the last time Israel and Hezbollah uh, went to war. I covered that war. It was just over a month. Uh, we had tens of thousands of Lebanese Canadians leave Lebanon, come back here. It was a difficult and, and deadly conflict. I'm wondering, from your perspective, does that how, how does that background inform kind of the decision-making, making whether it's on behalf of Hezbollah or the Israelis? It's for Hezbollah, certainly a big part of their decision making. Uh, Nasrallah, after that war, uh, in a public and in an interview, said if he had realized that the Israeli response was going to be as severe as it was in the summer of 2006, uh, he wouldn't have approved the operation that uh, killed Israeli soldiers and ultimately led to the start of that war. He, he signaled that he thought it was a mistake in hindsight. You look at Lebanon today, Lebanon is mired in one of the worst economic crises in modern history. It's been going on for four and a half years now. Uh, most of the population has been impoverished. Government and basic services have collapsed. So the country, not that any country is in a position to, to endure a war, but Lebanon is really not in a position to do that. And there is tremendous public pressure on Nasrallah, even from people within his own Shia community, not to draw the country into an all-out war. I think for the Israelis, the, the calculations are a bit different in the wake of October 7th. It has changed their whole uh, strategic perception of, of their neighborhood. And I think there's a bit more willingness to, again, take escalation risks on the Israeli side. But for Hezbollah, I think they really do want to avoid a conflict. OK, let's bring Hamas into this because, of course, it was its deputy leader, Saleh al who was killed in Beirut. Key part of Hamas's um, armed wing had connections to both Iran and Hezbollah and Le Lebanon. So in terms of his death, his killing, is that a setback to Hamas? It is. He was an incredibly significant figure. And, and his title, as you say, he was the deputy head of the political wing of Hamas. That makes him sound like uh, sort of a boring political apparatchik. In fact, uh, he was one of the co-founders of the Qassam Brigades, the military wing of Hamas. He was involved in building up its military capabilities, not only in Gaza, but also in his native West Bank, where he's originally from. Uh, he was also a very important interlocutor between Hamas and Iran. Uh, between Hamas and Hezbollah in Lebanon. Uh, he was someone who was closely involved with coordinating with the broader so-called axis of resistance. So an incredibly influential military and strategic figure 
uh, within the group. And, and his loss, it's a blow to Hamas at a time where uh, it already seems like it's having some issues with uh, command and control and, and with coordinating between the far-flung branches of its leadership inside of Gaza and then outside as well. Uh, Al-Aruri was also said to have had a, a major role in hostage negotiations during the past three months. There's still more than 100 Israeli hostages being held by Hamas in Gaza. What could his death mean for the future of any potential talks? He did have a role, and there's been some speculation that Israel could have assassinated him earlier, but uh, waited to do that because he was playing a role in these hostage talks. But I think the talks have run up against what was always going to be an inevitable problem, and that is the first truce that we had uh, late last year, the one-week truce that facilitated the release of about half of the hostages. Uh, that was something Hamas was willing to do as a short-term measure, and uh, not for very much in return for a week of quiet and the release of a small number of Palestinian prisoners. To release the remaining 129 or so hostages that they're still holding, the price for that is much higher. They want a permanent ceasefire. They want the war to end. Uh, they want a mass release of Palestinian prisoners. We would be talking thousands, not hundreds, released from Israeli jails. And that is just not a price that Israel has been willing to pay. And I don't see this Israeli government or any Israeli government in the foreseeable future uh, being willing to pay it. So I think the Israelis may have, have calculated at this point that the hostage talks, although they're still ongoing, they don't seem likely to advance much further. If you're just joining us on this Sunday morning, I'm Pia Chattopad. I'm speaking with Greg Karlstrom, the Middle East correspondent for The Economist. Greg, I mentioned this in, in the introduction. In addition to what happened in Beirut this past week, there were a number of other attacks um, in the region. ISIS claiming responsibility for those very deadly explosions in Iran, uh, militant group in Yemen launching attacks in the Red Sea, the concerns over shipping, the U.S. airstrike in, in, in Iraq. Is there, I mean, I understand that there's a through line that you can say the, the region is very volatile, but is there a connection between this various, these various incidents? There's a through line between most of them, I would say. Uh, everything that's happening in Lebanon, of course, that, that goes back to October 7th and to Hezbollah uh, joining the fighting against Israel after October 7th. What's happening in the Red Sea, uh, the Houthis, the, the group in Yemen that has been attacking shipping, used to be attacking Israel. They, after October 7th, also decided to join the fight uh, in support of the Palestinians, and they have fired cruise missiles and drones at southern Israel. When that proved to be tactically ineffective, they shifted to uh, this campaign of piracy against ships in the Red Sea. So all of this is an outgrowth of the Gaza war, as are the attacks on uh, American military bases in Syria and Iraq that led the Americans to uh, assassinate an Iraqi military commander this week. The one that I think is is unrelated to this, although perhaps the timing is opportunistic, is the attack in Iran on the uh, Qasem Soleimani memorial uh, a few days ago. I don't think that uh, was explicitly connected to what's happening in the broader region. Uh, I think the timing of it certainly uh, will lead the Iranians to feel an increasing sense of unease about their security position right now. They've had an attack on their own soil and a number of their militia allies assassinated in the past couple of weeks. But uh, I don't think that was explicitly connected to everything else that's happening. It's important for us, in addition to talk about all the military uh, maneuvers and responses, to talk about the 
civilians caught up in all of this. The bloodshed inside of Gaza continues as we go into this fourth month of the war. Um, thousands of people have been killed there. The humanitarian situation uh, growing worse day by day. How, how would you characterize what's happening in Gaza now? And and you could say it's the humanitarian situation that is almost the more pressing concern for so many people right now. The death toll uh, has passed 22,000, so we're talking about 1% of the population of Gaza that has been killed in uh, the space of three months. But the concern when you talk to both uh, ordinary Palestinians in Gaza and anyone affiliated with the UN or with aid agencies, uh, the concern is that many more might die in the coming months from hunger, from disease, from uh, just the really atrocious conditions in Gaza. The World Food Program is saying that uh, virtually every family in Gaza is now skipping meals, uh, that about a quarter of the population uh, could be classified as being in conditions of famine. They're suffering from an extreme lack of food. Uh, the WFP says there are three criteria for declaring a famine in a territory. Gaza already meets the first of those three criteria, and it's a man-made one because there is just not enough humanitarian aid being allowed into the strip and that's the real concern i think is even if israel shifts gears tactically in gaza as the americans have pressed it to do and, and shifts to a lower intensity campaign there uh, there's still going to be this huge problem of hundreds of thousands of displaced people who don't have access to enough food to enough medicine medical care uh, and that's only getting worse. Yeah, and Israel started talking uh, more deliberately this week, I think because the pressure's on Israel, to outline its, you know, sort of post-Gaza plan. I know it's 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 like a lot of kind of jargon words that, that it's put out there, but what do you understand it to be, at least in conception? The plan that they have put out, um, first, it rules out bringing back the Palestinian Authority to Gaza. And I should say this is a plan that, Yoav Gallant, the Israeli defense minister, presented to the cabinet this week. Uh, the Americans, other Western countries, want to see the Palestinian Authority, uh, which controls parts of the occupied West Bank, uh, return to Gaza and, and exercise control in Gaza. Prime Minister Netanyahu and many of his right-wing allies have ruled that out uh, for a variety of reasons, one of which is they think if the PA comes back to Gaza, it might lead to more diplomatic pressure on them uh, to some sort of a peace process with the Palestinians. And so. The plan that Gallant put out uh, instead relies on sort of a coalition of local notables from different areas of Gaza uh, being enlisted to do some aspects of civil governance to oversee education, healthcare, sanitation, uh, and of course, the more pressing concerns of reconstruction and how you clean up and rebuild the, the massive damage in Gaza. Uh, that is the proposal that he came out with. He also ruled out any Israeli civilian presence in Gaza. In other words, no re-establishment of Israeli settlements, which were uh, dismantled in 2005. He ruled that out, which is something that the Americans would be happy to hear. But refusing to bring back the PA is something that is an ongoing point of contention between Israel and many of its allies. So Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, is on his fourth visit, I think, since October 7th, back to the region. He's in uh, Jordan and Qatar today. He's going to Israel, the occupied West Bank, a number of, of, of Gulf countries. He's there to sort of say, hey, let's tamp down th these tensions. When he talks to the Israelis, though, and asks them to do that, we still have, I think you said it was 129 Israeli hostages inside Gaza, which Israel is intent to get out um, of Gaza. What, what influence does Blinken have at this point? I think if the Americans are not prepared to really use some of the 
the more extreme leverage that they have over Israel, he doesn't have much influence. Uh, every Israeli official right now, from Prime Minister Netanyahu on down, is talking about this war as something that will go on for most of, if not all of 2024. Uh, this is a long campaign in their eyes. And even if they do shift tactics a bit right now, that is not going to mean that they uh, withdraw the army from Gaza, cease bombardment of Gaza. There's no appetite for a ceasefire, in part because, as you say, there is still this question of the, the 129 hostages being held there. That obviously is not what the Americans want to see. Uh, they have a number of reasons for not wanting to see it. One of them is political with an election year uh, now in the United States. Joe Biden does not want to have this as a, a political issue dividing the Democratic Party. But what he hasn't been willing to do at any point over the last few months is use things like America's military support for Israel, uh, America's financial support for Israel, use those as points of leverage to try to pressure the Israeli government. He's opted for what some American officials call a bear hug strategy, uh, where he tries to hold the Israelis close and then convince them to, to shift gears on policy. And the Netanyahu government has shown over the past few months and actually many times uh, over the long years that Netanyahu has been prime minister that he's happy to ignore the Americans. Huh. There's not just divisions in the United States. Um, there are divisions around around the world. And I just want to ask you before I let you go about um, this coming Thursday, the International Court of Justice is going to hear South Africa's request for an interim measure to halt what it calls Israel genocidal actions in Gaza. Israel responded, accusing South Africa of a, quote, blood libel. The U.S. has said the South African claims are meritless. Realistically, if there is a ruling against Israel, would that make any difference, do you think, in how it prosecutes this war? I find it hard to imagine that it would. I mean, there is a long, long history now of the United Nations and other world bodies uh, issuing resolutions, issuing rulings, uh, urging Israel, demanding that Israel change its conduct, and Israel has ignored them. Uh, I think certainly with this government that's in power. I mean, I think many of Prime Minister Netanyahu's political allies, the ministers and politicians around him, uh, have said things that have, have supported the case at the ICJ. You've had Israeli officials talking about ethnically cleansing Gaza, getting rid of 90% of its population, forcing them to emigrate. You've had Israeli uh, Knesset members talk about dropping a nuclear bomb on the territory. They have said things that certainly sound genocidal in intent. And so I can't imagine this government uh, receiving a, a ruling from the ICJ if the court did order it to stop fighting in Gaza. I can't imagine this government uh, abiding by that ruling. Greg, thank you as always. I know we'll be talking uh, again in the coming weeks and months. I appreciate your time. Thank you. My pleasure. Greg Karlstrom is the Middle East correspondent for The Economist. And things are about to heat up here on the Sunday Magazine, whether you're listening to us on CBC Radio, Sirius XM 169, or on the CBC Listen app. Because right now, for the first time in 2024, I'm pulling out my pen and paper. I'm taking a deep breath. And I'm stepping into the arena of puzzlement. Yep, it's time to play That's Puzzling. Once a month, I take on one of my CBC colleagues and a super smart listener in a series of word challenges, and we are kicking off this new year with a brand new game. Now, 
The listeners and colleagues have been on a hot streak lately. I have not. Last time we played, 13-year-old Moss shattered our scoring record by getting nine points. So will I turn things around to start the year? Everything will depend on the man who designs our puzzles, my puzzling frenemy, Peter Brown. Hey, PB. Hello, PC. How are you? (laughs) I'm great. I like that I told you that everything depends on you. And I mean beyond that's puzzling. Everything that happens in my life depends on you. So you're saying the next 20 to 25 minutes will define your entire year? Yep. Yep. Will 2024 be the year of Pia? Look at it this way. You're undefeated so far this year. (laughs) I'll take it. I'll take it. I believe, Pia, that you will rock this. The only question is, will others rock it harder? It's time to find out. Yes, I recommend you use a pen and paper today. As Pia suggested, we're playing a new game, and pen and paper will be very helpful. Let's meet Pia's opponents for this month. First... With Pia in our Toronto studio, one of the greats at CBC Radio, she recently retired as the host of Tapestry, and I still warmly remember her work on the sports show The Inside Track. It is the one and only Mary Hines. Hello, Mary. Hello, Peter. Hey, Pia. Have you missed this building so much, Mary? Um... Um, uh, um, (laughs) pregnant pause. (laughs) You you know, I mean, it was 45 years of working in journalism, which feels like a substantial chunk of time. The answer is, Peter, I don't miss the building. I miss the people People. like Pia inside the building. I love it. You know, Peter, I don't miss the building, but I miss Pia. (laughs) Who's been handing me scripts. Mary scores one. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You're ahead by one point. Thank you. Thank you. Mary, you've done shows about sports and about spirituality. Is it fair to say that your entire career has been building to this moment? (laughs) I have been a word nerd my whole (gasps) life, but I'm not great at the games. So I'm not sure I should have said that, you know, on the air. Peter, I will just say, you know, bring a pen to the game, right? A pen and a piece of paper. Yeah. Mary has done what you've asked her to, but can I just describe her pen on the radio? It is um, a robust pen, let me just first say. It's got a good big barrel on it, and the reason it has a big barrel on it is one might have to insert an ink cartridge because it's a fountain pen. Right, right. Do you want to take it for a spin? Take it for a spin. No, 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 no. That's your magic wand. That's your magic wand. I got my gel pen here. Mary, we're very pleased to have you here. Thanks and, for and having if, me here. And if it weren't for the Pia streak, I would be 100% rooting for you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And our final competitor won their spot in today's game by entering our listener challenge. We asked you to invent a word to describe a person who shows up at the gym in early January and instantly realizes it's not for them. The person who walks into the gym maybe a couple days ago and goes, uh, no. And our winning word for that is... Gymnasium. Gymnasium. She's good. Is our winning listener, Benita Moore from Shediac, New Brunswick. Benita, you've already intimidated your opponents. Hello. (laughs) Hi, how are you? I am well, thanks. Welcome to the game. Benita, are you typically a January gym goer or do you get your exercise (laughs) elsewhere or is this just not for you? I have tried January gym times, so I knew the feeling right away, but... I'm more of an outdoors person. I love running outdoors, but sometimes it's just a little too cold and you think maybe I should try a gym, but it always feels like a mistake to me. (laughs) 
So short answer here, Pia, you are in tough company. Mm-hmm. You're up against Mary. You're up against Benita. Mary, Benita, Pia, let's play That's Puzzling. As always, we begin with a definition challenge. I'm going to give you a phrase and three possible definitions. One of those definitions is real. Two of them I've made up. And your challenge is to spot the correct one. Again, one real, two fake. Spot the right answer. It's worth one point. Today's phrase, two-word phrase, bimini twist. B-I-M-I-N-I twist. Bimini twist. Which of the following is a real definition of bimini twist? Is it... A knot used in fly fishing. Is it, in pickleball, a shot where the ball has so much backspin, it hits the ground and then bounces backwards back over the net? Or is it a kind of dance, a Charleston, popular in the 1920s? So your options are the fly fishing knot, the pickleball shot, or the 1920s dance. Which is the real meaning of Bimini Twist? And Pia, we will start the year with you. I feel like I have a bit of the inside track, and that's a (laughs) nod there to Mary Hines, if anyone got that. Uh, And the inside track actually has to do with our puzzle master, Peter Brown, who I know recently has taken up pickleball. Because I am pickleball years old now. Yep. And (laughs) I feel like if I know you a little bit, Peter Brown, that you went into pickleball and someone's, you said, what's that mean when someone says a bimini Bimini twist, you would have been, that's amazing for that's puzzling. So that's my thinking through this, that Bimini twist is a pickleball backspin. Pia believes it is pickleball backspin. Mary, which do you think sounds right? I was waiting for a number four because I was positive. <laughs> I, I only know Bimini as a, a kind of, it's part of a boat. You know, it's kind of like a, a, a cover on a, it's a boat How do you piece. know that? Oh. Um, be, well, uh, be, uh, because of a long you're very ago, smart. No, long ago, political scandal, Gary Hart, remember, was a prominent candidate for U.S. presidency, and he was seen on a boat in the Caribbean with a woman who was not his wife, and the, the word bimini appeared prominently in all the cheeky headlines. Oh. Yeah, so, it, so and I... Uh, yeah. Okay. So, you know, uh, uh, island-related, Caribbean-related, bo- parts of a boat-related. So I'm going to say not used in fly fishing because at least that's vaguely nautical. Okay. Mary thinks it's the knot. Now we have That makes stri- perfect sense. Can I switch my answer? No, I, th- no. I think pickleball okay. is pretty okay. sound. Okay. Oh, we, this has never happened before. We will give you the option once you've heard everyone's arguments of switching your answer if you want. But Benita has an interesting strategic decision to make. Do you take do you take a big swing and go for the untaken option, or do you have feelings about the other two? Fly fishing knot, pickleball shot, or Charleston dance? Well, I I crossed out the dance right away because twist and a dance, I thought that's too cute. And I thought, um, well, pickleball, I have played pickleball, and I've never heard, and there's a great group here in Shediac, I've never heard that term. I was going with the fly fishing, too, so I'm going with what Mary has Uh thought. I think you're both right. I'd like to switch. I'm going to allow you to switch (laughs) because you went first, because you had the disadvantage of going first. That's a, no, no, you don't allow me to go to switch. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to allow you to switch with an asterisk, but if it's a tiebreaker at the end, then the person who did not switch is going you know to win what, over Brown? you. You know what, Brown? 
don't try to like appease me. I'm here to play. I'm sticking with pickleball. Whoa. whoa. Well, clearly <laughs> after all that, clearly after me doing all of that, it is the fly fishing knot. Oh, huh. And I think Pia knew that because I tried to gently, gently lead her to, to answering that. Uh, well done to Mary. Well done to Benita. And Mary, you had an, even another definition that we didn't even know. So the score is Benita and Mary both have one point. Pia yet to get on the board, but there's lots to play for as we turn to round two. For our second round, we are introducing a new game, Anagrams, or moving those letters around Gram Saga. This is where a pen and paper will really come in handy. Players, I am looking for two words. These words will use the same letters rearranged. So if I gave you the clue, the number after two, and also a chemical used as a sedative, the answer would be three, number after two, and ether, rearranging those letters to get a chemical used as a sedative. Or, if the clues for whoever just sighed there. That was if me. The, <laughs> if, Mary, the clues were a room where wine connoisseurs store their bottles, mm-hmm. that room, think of it, you know it. Cellar. Plus, re, plus remember, rearrange the letters and sell it. There you go. Rico. Oh, now you are crushing the game. Yeah, the example round. <laughs> yes. Again, Mary succeeding in every way that does not score points. <laughs> Story was, of my yeah, life. Yeah. There are two points here and hints are available. Now, this is a new game. We have never played this before. So I will say these first clues are intended to be easy. Mary, are you ready? I am ready. Mary, I'm looking for two four-letter words that use the same letters. One means employ. And the other means successor. And there are hints available for either word. Four-letter word, employ and successor. Well, employ, I'm thinking higher. Can you rearrange those letters to get a word for successor? Uh, uh, air? Mary Hines, that is correct. Wow, you said that like not 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 confidently. I was not. No, I uh, I I no. You I, won, Mary. You won. <laughs> okay, okay, thanks. Thanks. Air. I get because it doesn't look the way it sounds out loud. That's no. what's tripping me up. Yeah. Well, I'm a radio girl. Take the W, Mary. You uh, got yeah, it right. I take the W. Great. Awesome. Thank you. Benita, are you ready? No. <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be a theme. It really is. Uh, <laughs> Here are your clues. And again, in in this round, I'm making it easier. I'm telling you how many letters are in the word. I am looking for two four-letter words with the same letters. One is a relative. One is a fish. Relative. And you can get a hint for either word uh, if you want. Okay. So a relative. Four letters. Oh. Oh, boy. I can't even think about it. Four four letters of a relative. Aunt. (laughs) Aunt. Is that, could that possibly be Well, it? I don't know. Can you rearrange aunt to get uh, a kind of fish? Um, no. <laughs> um, Let me ask you this, Benita. Are you sure? Okay, I'll try that one. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> My husband is a fisherman. Uh, he loves to fly fish. I should get this. Do you, um, uh, but I don't really know my fish. Benita. Say, yes, T-H-A-U, T-H. Well, no, because you're going to start with, you, if you're using the word you chose, you're going to start with aunt or aunt, spelled aunt, A-U-N-T. Yes. I'm going to suggest you yes. write those letters down and then try and come up with a fish out of those four okay. letters. You can do this, Benita. You can do this, Benita. And, oh, gosh. Uh, I'm struggling. 
Here's your um, hint, Benita. It's one of the most right on. It's one of the most common kinds of sashimi. If you order raw fish, you're you may oh, well be no. ordering. And there's my daughter. I should know this because she's always um, t- trying to get us out to eat sushi and such. Um, you. Are we allowed to give each know. other clues, or is that no. not done? We're not okay. that nice. No, <laughs> everyone is. Everyone is saying you should know this, but you do okay. know this, but you know A-U-T- I don't. I'm just in a. I'm in a stew. Okay. <laughs> Benita, how are you spelling aunt? A u n t. Okay. Yeah. Did you write Correct. it down? I did, but Take it doesn't start with. Nope, doesn't start with an A. You can completely T- scramble those letters around. Um. Think of a kind oh of fish you would, think of a kind of fish you would eat in a sandwich. Oh my gosh, Almighty! This is unbelievable. I'm too, I freeze right deer in the headlights. Um, tuna. Yeah. <laughs> and my cat gets a teaspoon of tuna every morning. <laughs> like, what's wrong with me? That's what you call. You know what, what that's called? Freeze. That's stress panic, right? Where yep. you just you, you start seeing black, and you're like, and everyone at home is going. And then oh it's not gosh. helpful when we all pile on saying, oh, you do know <laughs> no. this. Come on, girl. You know this. And you must yeah. have been getting a filthy look from your cat for not knowing that. <laughs> she is sitting right here in front yep. of her tuna dish. <laughs> but she only gets it in the morning. So, Benita, thanks to the patience of Pia and Mary, we're going to give you those and points. I appreciate that. Pia, mm. your challenge is six-letter word. Oh, six letters. How lucky. That means soundless. What? Oh, that soundless. means soundless. Yeah. Soundless. And rearrange those letters to get a word that means pay attention to a sound. Pay attention to a sound. Remember soundless. there are hints. Yep. Six letters. Soundless. Mute. Soundless. Um, 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 mute. Silence. Is that six letters? S-I-L-E-N-C. <laughs> What's no. the six letter version of Silent. that? Silent. Silent. Okay, so I have silence. And now pay attention to a sound. Um, um, listen. There it is. The score now is Mary 3, Benita 3, Pia 2. Now we turn to our final round. We're going to stick with anagrams or nags a ram. (laughs) Again, these are worth two points. These are, bad news, harder than the first round. Hints are available. Pia, Mm -hmm. you're up first. Mm -hmm. For two points, Mm -hmm. take a word that means stated. 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 Uh-huh. And rearrange those letters to get a word for a low platform. Mm. Said. Stated. I said something. Uh, and I got can no Can you rearrange things. said to get a low platform? Um, okay, I can get AIDS. No, no, she can't. Can Is get... it my turn? <laughs> Wait, I can get AIDS. I'm going to spell all the words. I can get Diaz. Um, I can get... Um... You're very close. Oh, don't stop. Dizza. Oh God. Oh God. Oh God. I'm panicking. I'm doing, I'm panicking. I'm panicking. Uh, state it a low platform. Oh shoot. Um, uh, Sida. Um, oh, and, and I can just feel everyone yelling at the radio. Um, said S A I D. Give me one more sec here, Peter. Yep. No um, yep. It's no, um, I does. Okay. If it starts with an A, it can be A D I S. Just makes sense. Uh, let's start with the D. D Diaz D S doesn't work D I A because that doesn't work. So I have to start with an I. Um, I D A Idsa. Oh my gosh, I'm feeling like tuna. Um, oh gosh, 
Syed, a low platform. What? The, I, this is going to be, this is bonkers. Bonkers. You have almost said it several times. I know, because there's only so one thing left and I can't think of it. Okay. Syed, Dassey. You oh, almost said it again. Dassey? <laughs> Dias? Oh, gosh. This you is pretty much mispronounced it just now. Dassey? <laughs> Daisy? <laughs> a dice. A dice. How do you say that word? Dice. Is that the right one? D D Mary's like making gestures, but I don't know what they mean. Control room is like, oh my God, she's such an idiot. I Pia, let me da just consult. D-A-I-S. Dais is Deus. correct. Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah, dais or dais. We can you know what's interesting? Uh, and Benita, I don't know if you've done a lot of like out loud uh, talking or reading in, in your time on the planet Earth, but Mary and I have done a lot of this and Peter Brown has too. We read words all the time. We say words. For word. a living. We've never had to say this word. Or we've said it completely wrong <laughs> for, for decades. No. We turn now to Benita. Benita, your two words mean perceive and extremely wordy. And please remember there are there is a hint available for this. Perceive and extremely wordy. And this is where we find out how hard this game is. Oh, okay. Any ideas? So extremely wordy. Oh my gosh. Can I go back to tuna? Yes. <laughs> Always guess tuna when in doubt. <laughs> perceive. So perceive. Just something. shoot out some words oh, for, for okay. perceive. <sighs> Okay, so perceive. Oh, is that a Pia? No, she that's a Mary. It. Listen, I'm oh, Mary. Okay, if you perceive something, you think you uh, re you. Um, uh, let's say you're oh, let's gosh. say you're a scientist um, and you perceive okay, something. That's your hint. Something's extra wordy. Oh my gosh! Um, <laughs> I I explored. I took you. Okay, you perceive it. You take it in. You see it. You. Uh, I'm gonna. Just try to nudge you along. That it helped me because I have it now. When I went oh. to try to solve the extremely wordy part, that's where I started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Extremely wordy. That that to me was the easier of yeah. the pair. Oh. So if something ex extremely wordy, someone talks, puts a lot of words. Yep, they're wordy. very talkative. You they fill the air with words. What are they? Well, my mother would say that they never come up for air, but <laughs> that doesn't help me. <laughs> That does not help me at all. Um, extremely wordy. I'm just going to have to pass on this. I can't believe it. I just can't even get my it's head. It's one of those, Benita, that I feel like that 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 word is not coming to you. You never. It, it's hard to struggle through to figure it it's out. It's a funny mm -hmm. game that yeah. way, right? Yeah. You, you, it either yep. has to land or you can't find it. You either yeah. have the aha moment or you don't mm. now. Mary, it is your option to steal this, and I think I heard you get it. So for very wordy, I thought of verbose, mm -hmm. and for perceive, I thought of observe. That is correct. Okay. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Here's where we are. Mary has five. Pia has four. Benita has three. Mary, this is your clue. If you get this right, you win. If you get it wrong, Pia gets a chance to steal. And if Pia gets it wrong, Benita has a chance to tie. Gloves so, off, girls. No pressure, Mary. <laughs> it's like playoff hockey. Mm -hmm. This is awesome. This is it. Yeah, except there are Canadians in it, so it's even more exciting. <laughs> Mary, we are looking for words that mean museum and a physical reaction. And I have a hint for both. You can choose either. Museum and a physical reaction. Museum. You might well need a hint. 
I, I, I'm not coming up with anything that means You've museum. You've one second. Oh, one oh, second. oh, okay, 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 right, right, right. Uh, museum. Museum, like gallery, a museum can be... I might need a hint, Pete. Um, the physical reaction is like a sensitivity to something in your environment. So you could flinch or you could sneeze or you could... Um, physical reaction to something in your environment you like an allergy or not so much can you rearrange allergy to get museum gallery oh. mary hines is our winner <laughs> no. oh, wow. mary hines dropped the mic in december picked it back up <laughs> bonked Pia and Benita on the head with it. No, I and never. Then... We're like dead tuna. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Mary Hines, as much as I would have enjoyed a Pia victory. Yeah, me too. What a great win. So when people say career highlights, now you don't even have to think about it. No, this was it. Benita, thank you for joining us and, and leaping in and playing along. It was a great honor. I love CBC and great to be here with Mary and Pia. And I'm glad Mary won. Yeah, Benita, you love Mary. It's great to be oh, here well, with you, Benita. Well, I've certainly listened to your show lots of times, and uh, and I love your voice. You just have a great way of uh, making everyone feel very human as your mm. tapestry theme goes. They, that's just You're such here. a lovely thing to hear. Thanks, Benita. I'm really glad you were listening, and it's a, it's great to be playing with you today. Mary Hines, well, congratulations on a wonderful career, and we wish you all the best. Thanks, PB. Yeah, I mean, it would be hard for me to let Mary go, it's, and I mean that very metaphorically. Um, for all of our listeners who have loved Mary over these years, um, boy, I wish you could all meet her in person. She is everything you think she is and so much more. <laughs> Sassy, smart. Uh, she knew that boat thing because Mary knows history and American history. She was telling me her daughter and her... Do you, want to, do you want to tell about the cutout that you have at Christmas? Do you want to say oh, that? Do you, you don't have to. You don't have to. <laughs> so we, oh, wow. I think we're, the, we're one of very few mother and daughter American Civil War obsessed pairs. Her, her graduation gift from McGill, I, I said, Let, let's go on a little trip. Where do you want to go? And she said, I want to go to Antietam, which was the site of the Union victory that allowed Abraham Lincoln to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. Yeah. And so we went to Antietam and, and it was epic. And um, I'm not sure how this came to be, but our Christmas tree every year features a life-size cutout of Ulysses S. Grant standing by the tree. And, and he looks exactly like he did in the original photograph taken at Cold Harbor, where he's leaning against I a tree. I think you said he's a babe. I think that's what you said to me. You know, it, it, can I tell you nothing without having no, it broadcast no, no, yeah. internationally? No, no, now you're retired, Mary. I'm telling oh, all your tales. Damn. Okay, yeah. the guy on the $50 bill, not so much. The presidency was hard on him. <laughs> but 1863, Ulysses S. Grant, woof. Gorgeous. <laughs> That's great. That gives me a new like it. when when it's a really hot, humid day in Edmonton. I'm just going to be like, wow, today is as hot as Ulysses S. Grant in 1863. <laughs> yeah, my my people. Yeah. Anyway, Mary, I'm sorry. That's a great story. Oh my god. Oh my god. I, you sent me a picture of that recently, and I was like, I think I said that's amaze balls. Okay. Did I send a picture and say, Pia, please broadcast yeah, to okay. the entire <laughs> damn world? <laughs> well. Congratulations again to the great Mary Hines. Thanks again to Benita and Pia. And that, for the first time in 2024, is a slightly bittersweet round of That's Puzzling. 
Love you, Mary. And yes, she was okay with us sharing that story about her on air. And big thanks to Benita and Peter as well. We will be back next month with a new round of That's Puzzling, and you could be our next listener contestant. If you want to put your name in contention, we invite you to take on our challenge. We want you to invent a word that describes the neighbor who shovels their sidewalk right up to your property line and not one inch further. So the neighbor who shovels their sidewalk right up to your property line and not one inch further, or if you want to use metric, not even one centimeter more. Email your made-up word to sunday at cbc.ca. Put that's puzzling in the subject line and please include your phone number. You will have until the end of next Sunday, January 14th, to submit your invented word. And the winner will play on air next month. And in doing so, we'll win either a Sunday Magazine coffee mug or notebook. Might also win the game. I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. It is a new year, and for many Canadians, they couldn't wait to say goodbye to 2023, in part because of the sight of their pocketbooks. Across our country, people watched nervously as inflation and interest rates hit their home finances. But the Bank of Canada told us that the pain would be worth it. So how much more hurt is left for us? Jim Stanford's an economist and the director of the Centre for Future Work. Jim, good morning to you and Happy New Year. Thank you very much, Pia. To you too. Okay, so Statistics Canada released December job numbers on Friday. The growth in employment we had been seeing through the first half of 2023 seemingly has stalled. Canada added just 100 jobs in December, but wages are still going up. So, Jim, what do those numbers suggest to you in the first full week of January? Well, this is based, of course, on what was happening at the end of 2023. Uh, we're getting numbers now for employment in December, and uh, it kind of confirms what we had been seeing through the latter part of the year, which is the, the labor market is notably weakening. And in fact, this has been part of the plan. Uh, the Bank of Canada's judgment is that the unemployment rate was too low, the labor market was too tight, and they had to slow things down in order to try and get inflation back to their desired target. And that's exactly what's happening. So we're seeing uh, basically a halt to new job creation. Uh, we're seeing a rise in unemployment. And it will probably get worse as 2024 goes on, unfortunately. Okay, so those were the decisions made by the Bank of Canada, Governor Tiff Macklem. That was one of many decisions he made in the past year to tackle inflation and get the economy in a place where the bank thinks it should be. There was a lot of anger by many Canadians at um, those decisions. To what extent do you think that anger is justified, given what you just said? Like, everything's going according to plan, but there's still a lot of anger. 
Hmm. I, I think, first of all, the, the, uh, the anger is indeed justified. Uh, people are feeling significant pain because of the higher interest rates. Obviously, for anyone with a mortgage that is either a variable rate mortgage or their term has expired and they had to renegotiate it with higher interest rates, uh, for those households, it could be an extra $1,000 a month that they had to find in order to uh, service their mortgage and keep the roof over their head. So that's, that's a heck of a change and not that many family budgets have just got a thousand dollars of extra room there every month that they could do that without making other sacrifices. Uh, I also think that it's justified morally in the sense that um, the argument that inflation was caused by Canadians, you know, having too much work and earning too much money and spending it, I think was misplaced all along. Uh, this inflation was very much the product of the COVID pandemic. We're still suffering from the aftershocks of that uh, incredible event uh, with all the shortages and lockdowns and supply chain disruptions and then uh, a big uh, energy shock uh, on top of it uh, when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. And none of that really had anything to do with Canada's labor market. In fact, I think we need more Canadians working, not less. And Canadians, uh, I think, uh, are right to be angry that in a way they're, they're being scapegoated as uh, the causes of a problem when in fact they're the victims of an inflation that, that really uh, started for reasons far, far beyond the control of average workers and average households. So uh, I'm not surprised they're angry and I think they should be. Okay, so... You talk about like one of the knockout effects for Canadian. There have been many. Um, the successive interest rate increases for the Bank of Canada, they began in March of 2022. And, you know, it sort of said like it takes, you know, maybe 18 months or so for things to sort of start showing up in the economy. So decisions that are made a year and a half ago really start, you start seeing the results of them about 18 months later. We have seen the Bank of Canada in its last three decisions hold interest rate steady at 5%. So I get the question Canadians want to know, Jim, is my pain over? Is the pain mm. caused by the hikes over for us? Well, I do think that we probably will not see further interest rate hikes from the Bank of Canada in this cycle, uh, barring some kind of global shock again. Um, you know, I, I did mention the uh, the energy price shock from the invasion of Ukraine, which in retrospect, Pia, is probably the biggest single thing that got inflation going so fast in 2022. Uh, we did hit 8% inflation for a short period. And in retrospect, the energy price shock was probably the main factor there. Uh, we are seeing obvious problems in the Middle East with the uh, attacks on shipping in the Red Sea and, of course, the risk of a broader war between Israel and Hamas. Uh, so that could very well cause another energy price shock. Um, barring that, I think that we're going to see continued uh, reductions in inflation and uh, we won't see the Bank of Canada increasing them any further. So that's the good sign. You know, if you if you um, stop banging your head against the wall, it feels good, but you could still have a headache for a while. And uh, Canadians are definitely <laughs> going to have a headache just from the uh, interest rate increases that are already in, in the pipeline. Uh, you know, you mentioned that time uh, time lag effect, 18 months, very important to keep that in mind. So really, we've only just seen the full effect of the very first maybe two or three interest rate hikes that the bank implemented uh, back in uh, in early 2022, let alone the you know six or seven more that came down the pipeline. So even if interest rates don't go any higher, and I don't think they will, uh, we are still going to see more pain from that as more mortgages are renewed at the higher rates, uh, as business uh, investment decisions continue to adjust. We've seen very weak business investment uh, in, in the latest data. Uh, and other adjustments are made to the high interest rate uh, environment. 
at some point, interest rates will start to come down, but uh, we don't see that uh, on the horizon just yet. And in fact, uh, the Bank of Canada has warned, you know, don't don't get too excited that interest rates are going to come down quickly. They They don't see that in the cards in the near future. The other thing the Bank of Canada has been really laser focused on for some time now is getting the inflation rate down to to 2%. We're not quite there yet. So what does that suggest the bank might do? Yeah, I think that's another reason why we shouldn't get too excited at the prospect of uh, lower interest rates in the near future. Uh, Their their official target is 2% inflation. The latest reading was from November uh, of last year. It was 3.1% year over year. Uh, but what that that actually looks better than it actually is, uh, Pia. The reason is uh, gasoline prices have been falling as that big energy price shock uh, from the the Ukraine war has kind of unwound and reversed itself. So we've got world oil prices for now anyway at a, a more normal level. So that big spike in gasoline and also natural gas and home heating oil uh, prices uh, has been uh, reversing. And that's what's dragged inflation down. Uh, but the broader inflation is still stronger than that. The the Bank of Canada looks at uh, other measures of so-called core inflation, and it's closer to 4%, and uh, they want it back to 2%. Uh, so this is one reason why they're, again, uh, in their mindset, uh, again, I stress, uh, I, I think they've misread the causes of this inflation, but in their mindset, they're still going to keep the foot firmly on the brakes of the economy uh, until such time as it looks like we're heading right to 2% in the near future. And that will take, uh, unfortunately, that will take more more misery. That's the whole idea here, unfortunately. Okay, so over the holidays, Jim, and I I think you probably had many similar conversations. I know a lot of people did. When I was out and about visiting with my friends, the two topics of conversation would be how high um, prices still are at grocery stores, Mm. People were feasting, you know, over the holidays and the number of people who were worried about their mortgages, mm-hmm. because we know that the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation is estimating about 2.2 million more mortgage renewals are on the horizon. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying there, I'm like, we just renewed our mortgage and it was mind boggling to me. And I have yes. an economic correspondent in my house to help me through that. What is all this going to mean for those Canadians who now have to make elevated payments? Right. Well, again, this is why the pain of the interest rate increases that have already been announced is still uh, working its way through the system. Because for a lot of people, if you had a longer mortgage, say a three-year mortgage or a five-year mortgage, um, before the interest rate started rising, then you haven't felt any of the pain yet. But you will when that letter comes in the mail saying, come down to the bank, it's time to renew. Um, and and so this is why things are going to get worse, even if interest rates don't go any higher. Uh, it's bad for mortgage holders. Uh, it's also bad, Pia, if uh, you're renting. And in, in fact, one of the most mm. painful dimensions of the uh, housing crisis right now in Canada has been in the rental market. Uh, and there's various ways in which the interest rate policies of the Bank of Canada have affected rents as well. Uh, the, the biggest is that they've just knocked the stuffing out of new home construction. The, the, you know, the, the business model for building and selling new homes or building and renting new units, uh, has really been hurt by very high interest rates. So we've seen a big downturn in residential investment over the last couple of years, which is perverse because everybody knows we need more houses in Canada. Our population is growing very quickly. Mm. And uh, we absolutely desperately need more houses. Yet in order to reduce inflation, we're going to knock the stuffing out of new home construction. 
And by the way, that will make the housing shortage worse. And by the way, that will make inflation worse. So it's, you know, quite perverse in that regard. And for people in the rental market, they're also desperate. Um, the, the market rents, that's what you pay if you're looking for a new unit, uh, in, in many of the major centers uh, in Canada have just exploded. And, and this again is for people who have generally less to, to fall back on. Um, another irony is people who can't afford to buy a home anymore because of the high interest rates, they've gone into the rental uh, market. And uh, so the demand for rental units has, has increased uh, as well. So put all that together, the housing price problem is uh, uh, obviously quite intense and uh, in some ways adding to the inflation problem. Uh, you also mentioned food prices, of course. Uh, it's always amazing to me how, how angry uh, people get when they go to the supermarket. And again, they've got good reason. Uh, food price inflation has been significantly higher than uh, overall inflation. And of course, food is a, an essential. You have no choice but to, to buy food, but obviously you're going to try and cut back or buy cheaper brands or go to a farmer's market rather than a, a supermarket. Uh, one reason for Canadians' anger, of course, is they, they have seen the big supermarket chains, the three big ones control two-thirds of our market. Uh, they have seen those chains make absolute record profits. Their overall profits have probably uh, have more than doubled since the COVID pandemic. So bad enough that you're, you know, experiencing inflation because of all the things going on in the world, supply chains and, and so on. But then to top it off by seeing a good healthy level of cream on top of it all in the form of supermarket mm. profits just drives people nuts. So uh, we have seen a lot of uh, anger. And, and again, I think that's justified, although the supermarkets aren't the only place that that sort of profit taking has occurred. We've seen it in other sectors, particularly uh, the oil and gas sector. So there's lots of anger to go around, but there, there is something about food, <laughs> something about food that gets people really, really upset. I suppose because we all need food, mm. right? You can choose to you to drive a car or not, and maybe that impacts there. You can, you know, at least turn away from or not use quite readily mm. as other people. But we all need food on our table. So yes. I think that anger that we've seen in 2023 continues on. If you're just joining us on this Sunday, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and I'm speaking with economist Jim Stanford about what Canadians might expect from the economy in 2024. Jim, I want to ask you about um, the a recession. Um, there were economists who predicted that Canada was heading into a recession. Some believe we're actually in one right now. I know recession is a, a technical term, two quarters of negative growth. Do I have that right? <laughs> yes, that's the kind of rule of thumb that's yeah. been used. Okay, so we're not officially in one, but you know, we still live under the sort of specter of a recession. And I wonder as we you know, enter into 2024, how you're looking at that possibility. Yeah. Uh, well, you're, you're right. Uh, the, the traditional definition of a recession is two quarters in a row of negative GDP growth. Uh, we had a bad negative quarter in the third uh, quarter of 2023. So that was the, the summer and fall. We won't get the data for the, the last quarter of 2023 until uh, the end of February. Uh, if that number is negative, then that will confirm that we are in a so-called technical recession right now. Um, now, we should take that definition with, you know, uh, a bit of a critical eye. It's an extremely arbitrary uh, uh, rule. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that we're in a full-on recession, as some of us might remember, say, from the early 1980s or the early 1990s. 
when GDP declined for、mm. a year or two, the unemployment rate went to double digits in the 80s, and the pain and suffering was, you know, very intense. We are not there yet, and、uh, hopefully we won't be there yet. Um, so what we have seen is we've basically seen the economy grind to a halt. You know, think of it as as being stuck in the mud. We we aren't going backwards, which is good, but we're not going forwards either. We're spinning our wheels, and、uh, we need to be going forward in part because of the, that very rapid population growth that we're experiencing. We. We expanded the number of Canadians by three percent last year. That's、um, unprecedented in in the the recent decades.、Um, all through new immigration, and most of the new immigration was temporary immigration, either、uh, people on temporary work permits, migrant workers. Or international students, many of whom come here to work as much as they come here to study. So,、um, with this very rapid population growth,、um, we need to be doing a lot more, and we need to be doing a lot more to build new housing, and we need to be doing a lot more to, you know, improve infrastructure and、uh, roll out renewable energy. So, in that situation, just being stuck in the mud, going nowhere. Feels like a recession,、mm. uh, or you know, sometimes、uh, economists define it in per capita terms. Per person,、uh, GDP is going backwards and has been for a couple of years.、Uh, so I don't get too hung up on whether we meet that two consecutive quarters test or not. It will be good fodder in the House of Commons, I can、mm. assure you, if that happens. But、um, in terms of the real lived experience of Canadians,、uh, it's already bad, and it won't really matter whether. We end up being a little above zero or a little bit below zero on those two quarters. The reality is we're、um, we're going nowhere right now and are going to continue to go nowhere until such time as the Bank of Canada and the government、um, ease up and、uh, start trying to stimulate the economy rather than restrain the economy. You know, when I look at the United States, which of course is our biggest trading partner, just their December job numbers. Ours was at a hundred jobs. Theirs was two hundred and thirty thousand jobs. The U.S. economy seems to be doing quite well. A lot of people don't want to see that or give Joe Biden, the president, credit for that. But it seems to be doing well. And I know it's kind of a fool's game, Jim, to compare economies, but we're deeply tied with the U.S. So when you look at the United States, they have an election coming up this year. Does anything keep you up at night in terms of how that economy and ours might be affected by by sort of things on the horizon? Well,、uh, the con- contrast with the United States is very instructive and and quite stark now.、Uh, Pia, their their GDP growth in the third quarter was four point nine percent, with a plus in front of it. Ours was minus one point zero percent, both at annual rates. Their unemployment rate is much lower. Their job creation faster,、uh, as you said. Uh, here's another very interesting difference between the two countries. The United States has a great big government deficit, and and it's not getting smaller. They're not they're not focused on you know balancing the budget and cutting back. In fact, they've been spending a lot of public money on everything from transportation infrastructure to all this new、um, renewable energy、uh, manufacturing. Uh, so their their deficit is、uh, many times larger than ours as a share of GDP. Uh, whereas in Canada, the political discourse is still, in, in my view, you know,、um, too much focused on you know, is this relatively small budget deficit going to get eliminated to zero or not?、Um, and that is one key difference. Another key difference、uh, between the two countries is harder for us to do something about in the short term. In the U.S., most mortgages are very long-term mortgages. Thirty years is the most common term. So, a lot of households that have mortgages haven't really been affected by the interest rate、uh, shock yet.、Uh, 
Um, in Canada, most mortgages are either variable rates or very short term. So this is another reason why their economy is in much better shape than ours. How long that continues? Uh, anybody's guess. Uh, we're all looking at the politics in the United States and what happens if, you know, we get kind of a further uh, a kind of crumbling of democracy there with uh, some of these crazy things happening. Uh, hopefully uh, they they work their way through that and maintain that positive momentum in the economy, uh, which really the U.S. is so big, it, it can kind of lift the whole world's trajectory and certainly Canada's trajectory. Mm. So uh, their success, I think, is a, is a bright light right now. And I think something that we should learn from uh, in Canada. Another interesting point, something that isn't at all different between Canada and the United States is the inflation rate. The inflation has followed virtually the same path in the two countries, even though the U.S. has an enormous government deficit and Canada has almost balanced budgets. So that right there disproves the kind of common talking point you hear a lot that our inflation was caused by government spending. That's absolute nonsense. Uh, when you look internationally, there's no correlation at all between government spending and inflation. And the U.S. experience proves that uh, deficits, if they're timed well, uh, can actually help the economy keep growing despite uh, some of the challenges of obviously the pandemic, but high interest rates and other factors like that. The other thing, you know, when I was talking to people over the holidays, it just the common question was sort of like, when's this going to be over? I'm not going to ask you to prognosticate, Jim, but mm. are you optimistic about the Canadian economy in the in the coming year? Well, I think this year is going to be more more pain, uh, no doubt about it, and perhaps even a little bit worse than the than the pain we experienced in 2023. So, in the short run, I'm not optimistic, and I do not expect that the Bank of Canada is going to change its view. They've been very narrowly focused on inflation, which they say results from too much uh, spending power among Canadians and too many of us working. Uh, so, you know, in, unless there's a sudden change of heart there, which I highly doubt, um, we're going to continue to see very strict monetary policy, and that is going to be the dominant force uh, holding us back. Uh, one of the bright lights is we, we have seen uh, in Canada, really the only thing that was growing at the end of 2023 was the public sector with uh, various programs, uh, healthcare, obviously education, uh, some of the investments being made in infrastructure, hopefully a lot more investment in public housing or non-profit housing in the future. Um, that's been a bright light. Um, I do think that ultimately we've got so much going for us in Canada. We absolutely uh, should be optimistic. We've got a great um, set of resources. We've got great people. Uh, we've got a great uh, a set of relationships with the rest of the world. Uh, we also have, and this is something we can't take for granted in the world anymore, we so far have got a stable and reliable uh, democratic system and rule of law. And when you look at what's happening, you know, with outbreaks of uh, populism and kind of authoritarianism in different parts of the world, uh, our ability in Canada to continue to have an argument, but then, you know, uh, have, a, have a democratic outcome to that argument and implement policies that we agree on is incredibly, incredibly important. And, you know, the, the thing that keeps me uh, definitely awake at night in a way is, is more that political dimension of where the world's headed rather than uh, our economic prospects in Canada. It is going to be a tough year, but uh, eventually uh, we've got so much going for us. Uh, we should be optimistic in the long run. Okay, Jim, we'll leave it there. I appreciate so much your analysis as always. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Pia, and Happy New Year. Jim Stanford is an economist and the director of the Centre for Future Work. You're listening to The Sunday Magazine on CBC Radio, Sirius XM 169 and on the CBC Listen app. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Well, it is the first full week of the new year. And for a lot of people, 
this means a time to think about change in their lives. And whether it's the kind of change that we plan on and work toward or the kind that life just throws at us sometimes, my next guest is something of an expert in navigating life change. Maya Shankar is a cognitive scientist as well as the host of the podcast, A Slight Change of Plans. Maya doesn't just talk the talk. She's lived through some amazing life changes herself. Maya Shankar, hi and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too, Pia. I know um, you're someone who is always thinking and talking about life change. So I'm wondering, what what is it like for you when we turn the calendar to a new year when, you know, so many people are making resolutions and vowing to become someone new or at least someone newish? Yeah, I think the new year is a wonderful time for us to reflect back um, on the previous year and try to figure out... Um, where there were gaps in our intentions and our actions, right? We all have these goals um, that we don't always reach, and we, it's really helpful for us to figure out where those gaps exist and, and what we can do about them. And I also think it's a really helpful time for us to reflect on our identity. And identity is a key part of change because one of the reasons why change is so scary is that it necessarily involves the loss of some aspect of who you are, right? Like by definition, um, you are moving from an old way of being to a new way of being. And so there's some degree of loss loss and grief. And so um, I think it can be really helpful to also reflect on, on your life from that perspective. Um, you know, we're really constantly changing. And so you can choose any moment in the year. It's exciting for it to be January, but uh, we're in this constant state of, of change. And that's kind of exciting because it means we can introduce uh, changes in our lives and also discover new things about ourselves all the time. You said exciting. Some people hearing you can say that's a very unsettling proposition that we're always in a state of change. Well, it's taken me a while to get used to it. I mean, I think one reason I started this show is that I'm really scared of change. And so over the years, thanks to the wisdom of my guests, I have gained some equanimity around uh, these changes of plan. But I think it's very, it's very common for us to feel anxiety in the face of change. And one reason for that is change is filled with so much uncertainty. And as humans, we just hate uncertainty. So there's this really compelling research study showing that people were more stressed when they were told they had a 50% chance of getting an electric shock than when they were told they had a 100% hmm. chance of getting an electric shock. So we would rather be certain that a bad thing is going to happen than to have to deal with any feelings of uncertainty or ambiguity. And I so resonate with this finding, Pia. I mean, I, I'm always looking for the certain outcome. Um, but of course, that's just not how life works. And so what I've been training my mind to do is to see change through a different lens, a more hopeful lens. And um, again, thanks to the to the wisdom of my guests and the science experts we have on the show, I feel like I've learned so much about change and and so much about how malleable we can be as human beings in the face of change. So you're here as an expert, you're a cognitive scientist and, and a podcaster who's gained a lot of knowledge through that. You're, you're here as those two things, those two hats you're wearing, Maya, not as a musician, but your story really does start with the violin. Can you kind of just take us back? Because of course, like all of our lives, there are through lines. So take us back. What are your first memories of playing this violin? So when I was six years old, my mom went to our attic and brought down my grandmother's violin, which she had brought with her when she immigrated to the U.S. from India. She opened this case. I mean, it was dusty and, you know, all the strings were warped and the bow hair was yellow and, and whatnot. But I just thought it was magical. And so I, I very quickly asked my mom for a quarter-sized violin of my own. And I immediately fell in love with it, Pia. Um, so 
my parents tell me now, like, they never had to tell me to practice when I was a little kid. And rest assured, they had to ask me to do lots of things <laughs> that I did not want to do. But music just wasn't one of them. So I would, you know, I, I would rush home from the bus stop after school. I would practice for hours. Um, it really became the singular focus in my life. And the intensity of that violin journey only intensified when I was nine and I was accepted at the Juilliard School of Music in New York. And uh, over time, you know, started to dream big that that I might be able to become a professional. Okay, I'd like to say to our listeners that you made it sound like you just waltzed in the door of Juilliard and said, hey, accept me. But that is kind of what happened, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, a tiny, tiny bit. So yeah, it's kind of a funny story how the Juilliard thing happened. So as I mentioned, I started playing violin when I was six. And then uh, after a few years, my mom kind of realized that my big dreams and ambitions were exceeding the opportunities that she was aware of in, you know, in my hometown in Connecticut. And so we had known about the Juilliard School of Music, but man, it felt so out of reach. I mean, I, I didn't have the technical expertise. I didn't have the right teachers that would train me to get into a school like that. Um, but one day, my mom and I were in New York. I had my violin with me because I was playing another audition earlier that day. And we walked by the building, and my mom said, um, Maya, why don't we just go in? And I thought she was nuts because what do you mean just go in? There are security guards. We don't actually have an invitation. There's no one here we're meeting. But I I kind of loved that fearlessness. And for the violin, I was willing to do anything. And so we we walked inside. Um, my mom, you know, asked the, the front staff, you know, is it possible for my daughter to just see her dream school? And they were very kind. And she, my mom ended up striking up a conversation with a young girl and her mom in the elevator. And this young girl was a, was a student playing the violin as well. And after we chatted for a bit, um, we learned that she was studying with this amazing violin teacher. And so my mom said, oh, would you mind if, if Maya played for him after your lesson? Would you mind just facilitating an introduction? And, you know, kindness of strangers, um, they said yes. And Within an hour, I was auditioning on the spot for this particular professor at Juilliard. Um, that was not an admission ticket. Um, in fact, he made it very clear at that moment in time that I was absolutely not good enough to pass the Juilliard audition that fall. Um, but he took me on uh, as a summer camp student, and that was an amazing boot camp. And I I learned so much in those you know five or six weeks. And then in the fall, thanks to this teacher, you know I I, I was properly skilled and was able to pass the audition. But it was a wonderful lesson to me at an early age that um, when you don't, you know, when the when the silver platter isn't given to you, you just kind of create it. You just walk in, you try to make opportunities happen for yourself. And I've tried to continue to hold on to that spirit in, in these many other twists and turns I've taken in my life. I'm keeping a little list while you talk, kind of, it's for myself, to be honest, quite selfish act here, but um, kind of glomming on to things you say in, in the face of change and embracing that more, because that's where we started. And the first one I have is fearlessness. So thank you for that. I will continue to make my list. <laughs> it's really, I mean, it's a hard, it's so much easier to say than to do. But what I found is that if you can just build small data points along the way, that you are able to step up, uh, again, even in these micro ways, over time, you really can build the confidence to enter a room cold, you know, and, and, and make yourself heard in this case, right? Because I was playing the violin. Um, but it, yeah, it obviously, it, it takes practice. And, you know, I was, I was just as nervous as anyone. Um, but over time, I've learned it. So you eventually get accepted as a student at Juilliard. You become a private student of, of one of your heroes, the great Itzhak Perlman. And I assume it's safe to say at that point, your dream was to become a concert violinist. 
Yeah. So I, um, you know, it's such a it's such a tough space to operate in um, to to try and become a professional classical musician. It's incredibly competitive. The slots are so few. And I think when Perlman took me on, that was the vote of confidence that I needed to feel like maybe I had a shot at going pro. And and that's when things in my brain started to adjust. And I was like, oh, you know, maybe rather than regular college, I'll I'll go to conservatory. And I just started having all of these future dreams that I never thought were going to be available to me. And then when I was 15, I was at Perlman's summer music program. And early, uh, I think it was in July, this cold morning, I got up to practice this very challenging piece by Paganini. And um, after giving that opening passage a go, you know, I don't know, 15 times, I suddenly heard a popping sound. And unfortunately, it was not a string that had popped, but a tendon in my hand. So I had really, really harmed my hand um, in playing the single note on the violin. And, you know, like every teenager, I kept resisting what doctors were telling me. I was, I would, I played through pain. I used lots of anti-inflammatories. I did physical therapy. I mean, I was willing to do anything at all in the world to keep my violin career going. But over time, you know, when surgery didn't work and and other things didn't work. And so eventually uh, doctors told me that my dreams of becoming a concert violinist uh, were over, that I, that I had to stop playing. Here's the thing, Maya. Um, you know, when a, a baseball pitcher hurts their arm and can't pitch anymore, they're pitching at, I don't know, 70 miles instead of, you know, 90 to 100 miles. Um, it's more than just like, I can't do the thing. And for you, it was not just like, oh, I hurt my hand, I can't do the thing. We're so identified with certain things. So, you know, I'm identified as a journalist wherever I go in the world, even though there's so much mm-hmm. more in my life. You're identified at this point in your life as a, a violinist. It's not just, you know, your 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 vocation. It, it was your identity. Identity. So that that's that's a massive setback on many fronts. Absolutely. And I the change was so disorienting in a way that I did not appreciate in advance. I, I think I absolutely believed that I would mourn the loss of the instrument if I lost the ability to play. But what I wasn't expecting is how much I would mourn the loss of myself at this more fundamental level. It was it was really only when I lost the ability to play the violin that I realized how much it had defined me. And um, all of us have these things that we attach our self-worth and, and our sense of self to. And it was, it was so alarming to feel like I had put so many of my eggs <laughs> into the violin basket. And then, you know, suddenly the, the rug is pulled out from under my feet. And so it took a really long time for me to uh, rediscover who I was and who I could be without the violin. So we need the... Um playbook for that because massive setbacks for a lot of people, especially when it's so tied to their identity, they just feel stuck. You managed to pivot to become this successful cognitive scientist after having your musical dreams and really your identity sort of crushed. So so what's the playbook? How do you manage that? Well, there's a lesson that I've learned actually only in the last two or three years from from making a slight change of plans. Um, And I think it can be helpful to people. So so first, I should say, I think that defining ourselves by what we do is such an irresistible part of the human experience. And it's obviously a huge driver of passion. And it centers us, right? It makes us feel like every day is worth living when we're really passionate about something. So I, I never want people to feel like they can't attach their identity to the things that they love. Um, but what I learned from my experience is that there was something a bit more sturdy that I could have anchored my identity to um, that would have put me in a less precarious position. And so when I asked myself, 
you know, what is it that I really loved about the violin? I really interrogated, like, what's under the surface, right? If you, if you strip away the superficial features of being a violinist, what still remains? And I realized that the key driver of my passion was in connecting with other human beings. And um, I still remember as a kid, I mean, it's it's pretty intoxicating to play in front of a room full of strangers and know that you might all feel something new together through your music, right? It's it's so amazing that we as humans can have an experience like that. And I was awestruck by that. And um, I loved that connection between musician and audience, right? That that was what drove me. And so I realized, okay, that's that's the underlying feature of the violin that really sustained my interest. It was it was connecting with other humans. And so then there was this light bulb moment of, well, well, then when the violin went away, I was still able to find that underlying feature in many other pursuits. So as a cognitive scientist, I study the science of human connection and how our brains work and how we engage with other people and how we build our attitudes and beliefs about the world. Um, when I worked in government, um, certainly through my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, it's all about facilitating human connection and um, building these deep emotional bonds with other people. And so that's my through line, right? I realized that rather than anchoring my identity to pursuits, right, the things that I do, I can instead anchor my identity to the why, the why I do it, what drives me, the, the, those, un, those underlying features. And that has helped give me a sense of stability in the face of many slight changes of plan <laughs> that, have, that I've subsequently um, experienced. And so now I think of myself as, you know, rather than being, you know, thinking, oh, I'm a cognitive scientist first and foremost, or I'm a podcaster first and foremost, I think my primary identity is someone who is just absolutely fascinated and obsessed with humans, <laughs> connecting with them, their psychology, whatnot. And that has given me a more expansive sense of self that's allowed me um, to be a bit more resilient when things change. And so I would urge people listening to ask themselves, you know, what is that common thread for them? Maybe it's a it's it's empathy, right? Maybe it's a desire to help other people. Maybe it's a love of learning, right? Where you just love learning new things. Maybe it's um curiosity for certain topics, right? So you can figure out at a slightly more abstract level, like what that passion is. And that can be something that persists uh, despite the many curveballs that life can throw your way. If you're just joining us on this first Sunday of 2024, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and I'm speaking with Maya Shankar. She's a cognitive scientist as well as the host of the renowned podcast, A Slight Change of Plans. Okay, I have a sidebar that says emotional connections because that's why I love being a journalist too. Um, but I also have under fearlessness, why? So that's my list. If anyone else is keeping a list, there's your list on, on my end anyway. You know, one thing that sometimes strikes me is like when I'm reading about, I don't know, some Silicon Valley entrepreneur who's uh, decided to <laughs> make you Marie Kondo their life, let's just say, live off the grid with only a server. I mean, check out, blah, blah, give it all up, all those things. Um that it takes considerable means to affect dramatic life changes. And I think that's where some people get stuck. It's like, well, I don't have the means or the, and, and by means, I don't just mean economic means, financial means. I mean, the time means, right? The energy means. But so what if you're not sort of equipped with all of that? If you're not wealthy and a, and a sudden change strikes, how do structural barriers like income, race, age affect our ability to adapt to even that unwanted change, right? Because change can sometimes be a choice. Most often or often it is not by choice. Yeah. I mean, that's 
it's an extremely challenging question to answer because I think there's no easy solution. Um, what I will say, though, is that my focus is on our is fundamentally on our psychology. So I think in the throes of change, if we can make small adjustments to our perspectives, the way we frame problems, the way that we emotionally appraise certain situations, it can have a really transformative impact on how we feel about those things, the types of decisions we make about those things, and the narratives we tell ourselves about our lives. And so um, that's really the focus of my work and, and certainly a slight change of plans, which is when we can't control much in our lives other than our own minds— what do we have available to us? Um, and that's the power of the show, which is actually we can do a lot with our own minds <laughs> if, that's, that's, if that's the only resource we have uh, at our disposal. And so on your podcast, as you say, you speak to people who have endured very difficult um, events in their lives. And, and so that's sort of maybe the through line that I was going to ask you about is that, you know, you only have control over your mind. Is there a person or a story that kind of stands out for you? Yeah, wow, there's so many um, that have, have really, really touched me. Um, I think there's an early episode that I did with um, a friend of mine, Scott, who got a stage four bone cancer diagnosis in his 30s. It was actually during the pandemic. Um, and up until this point, he had been a total health nut. I mean, he was doing every hack in the book. So intermittent fasting, he was vegan, he was doing high intensity interval training. I mean, if you find it somewhere as is in some book as being healthy, he, Scott was doing it. And so getting cancer in such an aggressive form of cancer was really his biggest nightmare come true. I mean, this was exactly the outcome he was trying to stave off through all of his militants um, and, and the strict regiment that he would follow every day uh, in, his, in his young life. And um, Scott's journey was so transformative because on the other side of change, he had a few discoveries. One, he had seen his fitness as being such a core part of his identity, right? So we were, we talked about identity and how that can be such a such a fundamental part of change. Is you know you 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 get cancer, but in Scott's case, you also are mourning this identity that you once had of this active person who was working out three times a day or what have you. And what Scott realized um, is that when you took that aspect away from him. I think the exact quote was like, there's still so much more that makes me Scott, like that makes Scott Scott. And um, there's this beautiful exploration that he engages in of all the things in his life that still bring him so much joy and all the components of his personality that um, still make every day worth living. And it's it was so I mean, I talked to him in the throes of, you know, treatment. And then after he uh, finished treatment, I'm so happy to report that he um is is currently cancer free, um, but to see that trajectory unfold in real time was was immensely powerful. Okay, so I just wrote down in in the face of unwanted change, take stock of who you are, who you really are in its fullness. Fair. Yeah. So that's what we're going to do in the face of unwanted change. Um, it is the start of the new year, a time when a lot of people and I say, look, change is all around you. Three hundred and sixty five days a year. You don't got to wait till January, but. Um, People are looking at changing their lives, evaluating what they can do better, who they can be better, do things differently. So just before I let you go, Maya, when we're contemplating um, a change, a significant one, not a, you know, I shouldn't eat donuts anymore because it's January 1st or whatever, um, or maybe maybe this applies to that as well, what should we be keeping in mind? Yeah. So I think, um, I mean, there's a whole fascinating science of goal pursuit and motivation, and, and I explore that um, on my show. And so I would encourage people to check out some of those episodes, right? The science of motivation, the science of grit, lots of helpful helpful strategies there. But um, 
I think a couple things. So one is to try to set your goals when you're in the same psychological state as you'll be in when you're actually trying to achieve the goal. So we often have this experience where, you know, Sunday afternoon, we're sitting on the couch and we're thinking, yep, I'm going to get up every morning at 6 a.m. in order to go work out at the gym. You're not, there's an empathy gap between that 4 p.m. on the couch on Sunday self and the 6 a.m. self that you haven't solved for um, when you're setting that goal. Now, if you're actually at the gym at 6 a.m. on Monday, that's a reasonable moment to say, I'm going to continue to do this for the rest of the week or whatever, the rest of the month. But we want to make sure to bridge these empathy gaps so that we're setting reasonable goals um, and that we're not setting ourselves up for failure. Um, so that's the first thing is like, make sure you're in the right state of mind and, and you're in an empathetic state of mind towards your future self <laughs> when you're deciding what the goals are you want to achieve. The second is that and this is uh, research in psychology showing that it's really helpful to build in what's known as emergency reserve or slack. Um, so when you build goals, you know, none of us are going to be able to achieve perfection. You know, let's say you have this goal of going to the gym. Well, on Thursday, your kid's sick. Now you don't have the opportunity to go to the gym. And the purity part of our brain thinks, okay, well, I've fallen off the wagon because I didn't go on Thursday. So I guess I'm just going to give up on this resolution altogether. Um, and that's why what's really helpful is in goal pursuit, you want to build in, say, five freebie days every month where you just allow life to happen. And those will be days that you don't go to the gym, for example, but that doesn't mean that you haven't actually reached your goal because it's been built into the system. And so I I think the summary from these two, the summary reflection from these two recommendations is you you want to have an empathetic posture when you're building goals, right? It's easy to get ahead of yourself, to get really excited, to be in a super ambitious frame of mind. But at the end of the day, we don't want to set ourselves up for failure. And so we want to make sure that we're setting reasonable goals that we actually feel we can achieve, given that we are human beings who are fallible. I appreciate um, listening to you so much. As I said, I've got my list. And um, give yourself a break might be the last one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go easy on yourself a little bit. Like behavior change is really hard. Um, Maya, thank you so much. I appreciate you so much. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. Maya Shankar is a cognitive scientist as well as the host of the podcast, A Slight Change of Plans. So that's it for this week here on The Sunday Magazine. Our producers are Levi Garber, Andrea Huang, Adam Killick, Pete Mitten, and Rondé Williams. We had additional help this week from studio director Susan McReynolds. Our senior producer is Howard Goldenthal. Our executive producer is Brian Colton. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thanks so very much for lending us your ear. Till next Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.